The festival. Here we go. There's really nothing quite like it. How are you guys doing? When you pick the right acts to see, it's musical nirvana. So if given the power of the festival gods to have absolutely any act you desire, alive or not, playing in that perfect spot at the perfect moment, who would you choose? I think we're going to walk in and we're going to hear the clash. Oh my, what a brilliant start. If I hear Adele one more time, ah! but she came in a Glastonbury and I was like, oh my God, the emotion. You have to drum up some controversy. Yeah. Kendrick headlining over the Beatles. <laughs> Behold, the greatest day of our lives. Oh, yeah. Let's go. Welcome to the lineup, you beautiful spirits of Eden. I was like, yes. Such an anthem yes. for that, isn't it? Someone gets what I've been feeling but couldn't express. Who the f are these yeah. people? <laughs> Thank you. What do you call someone whose job it is to count exotic birds at the zoo? That's right, a polymath. Yeah, you like them apples and you wonder why I gave up stand-up in 2017. Well, now you know. Our next guest, however, is one of our most beloved stand-up comedians, a newspaper columnist. She's written three books. Her latest is a young adult fable called Kissing Emma. It was completed during that little lockdown of 2020. And her new stand-up tour, it was the 90s, wasn't it? Just is taking her to venues up and down and around the UK, including Barnard Castle, it says here. Should be fun. Dates are booking up till May 2022. Don't compare yourself, Sean. Stop it. You'll always have cats in gangs. And a bit like Prince, but for very different reasons, she's the artist formerly known as Shappy. So let's see where she's going to take us on this magical mystery festival we're about to embark upon together. Welcome to the lineup, Chaparat Corsandi. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm exhausted. Oh, I bet you are. After You've that, had... it was quite a long introduction. It was a long introduction. I'm, I'm nearly 50 now. I can't do more than two paragraphs at a time without having a drink. And also you had to say my full name that yeah. I have annoyingly insisted on now to everyone. Just because, but you did it really well. Well, I was a bit nervous about it because it's like a social anxiety. It is. And I think with names, particularly foreign names, we're made to feel that if we don't get it exactly right, then we are a big, fat racist. <laughs> it's so true. Big, fat racist don't get a name that I, they've never heard before with vowels that don't usually go together in their own native tongue. Then that makes you a massive racist and uh, I'm leaving <laughs> immediately. I had a friend when I was growing up called Ali Hussain. And we were friends for about a year before he said, you know what, we know each other well enough now for you to just call me by my first name. I thought it was a double-barreled name. I've been calling it. It was like me going, hey, Sean, Sean Keevney, do you want to go and grab a drink? Sean Keevney's coming over. <laughs> Sean Keevney, do you want a tea? Oh, God. <laughs> I might, so, maybe that could be my change. Maybe I should insist on people calling me by my full name. Yeah, so my full name is no different to like, say if, if you'd been Andy yeah, and you're like, ah, oh, do you know what? I'm really sad that Andrew isn't on the front cover of my book or my tour posters because I only started calling, being called Andy because people at school couldn't pronounce Andrew. But now that we've all moved on yeah. and we're, we're, we're fine, I mean, we've had Bakaya Saka, we've got Ramesh Ranganathan, oh, yeah. we've got, you know, no one gets their knickers in a knot. Yeah. It's fine. It's not the 80s anymore. That's I still, interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm still fine being called Chappie like as a mate, but yeah. 
I do like to have my real name brought to the fore. And to some extent, it's like a reclamation, would you say? Does it, does it just give you a bit more satisfaction? I think it's, it's quite healing, Sean, because I had to acknowledge that I got rid of my name because I felt like it didn't make me fit in. It was just yet another thing that made me not fit in. I, you know, got to a point where the, the sound chaparac Chaparac, Sharparac, it just made it sound like I was going to be teased yeah. or mocked in some way. And I just thought, why am I still feeling that at all? also nearly 50? A lot of people have started. Tandy Newton did the same thing, didn't she? I was very inspired when yeah. she reclaimed her W. Yeah, and that's beautiful. Mm. You know, it even happens like David, uh, David Gilmore. Mm. You know, he's like, I don't want to be Dave anymore. Can you just call me David, please? Yeah. You're welcome. And actually, David, if you're listening, which you will be, happy to come on the podcast anytime you like. Well, you know as well, like, you know the beginning of Dirty Dancing? Do I? Where she says... Um, it no, was I a, don't, actually. I've never seen it. You've never seen Dirty Dancing? No. Amazing. I only... No, that's balls. We watched it for the first time. I watched it for the first time just before my third child was born in October 2019. So, yes, I'm back on the page. Amazing. Well done. Thank Good. you. So, um, in the beginning bit, yeah. she says, it was the summer when everyone called me baby and it didn't occur to me to mind. And that's the thing with Shappy. I just thought it's yeah. now occurring to me that... It's my time. It's my, my time, time to make things my way yeah. instead of having something imposed on me. Did we ever share a bill? I don't think we did. I did. My devotees and listeners, all nine of them, will know this story back to front. I did stand-up comedy, a desultory version of it between 2010 and 2017. We were on the bill at Latitude together. Yeah, okay. Yeah, 2014-ish, <laughs> something yeah. like that. The last latitude I did, I think. What's the difference between... Because we've had mostly musicians do this so far, so they, yeah. they choose mostly musicians to do a festival. When you say a festival, you think music. But for somebody like you, you're a wordsmith, you're an author, you're a comedian. You've got so many different kinds of festivals to go at. You've got book festivals that you must do. Mm -hmm. You've got comedy festivals. And like you say, you've got things like Latitude that are music and comedy. Do they all have different qualities, different people, different kinds of vibes? Absolutely. So first of all, I love festivals as a music punter. So I get very, very excited about um, stomping around seeing bands. And then when I started comedy, the comedy tent at festivals, say if it was raining, it would get full because people wanted in out of the rain. <laughs> so that was hard. But then now it's at a point where if the sun is shining and there's a really cool band on and you can kind of hear them in the distance, but those people have chosen to come and see you in the comedy tent, yeah. I get very emotional about that. Because all comics want to be, we'd, we'd all rather be in bands, we'd all rather be singers. This is the next best thing. I've written it down. Uh, yeah. Clear this one up, I've written. Musicians want to be comedians and comedians want to be musicians. So there's truth to that. hundred percent. We've got so much to, to get through, so I'm just going to crack on. I'm going to need five acts from you, okay. Shappy. Will there be fellow comedians in this? Because, well, we've had, we, we've had actors as well and stuff, but we people have, have stuck to the that sort of conventional brief. It's a festival, so there must be music. Will you be introducing non-musicians into the bill? Just to give us a little teaser. I will, because 
festivals for me as a comic don't just mean music. Yeah. Some of the best comedy I've seen have been at a festival. There was a guy called Woody Bot Muddy who always <laughs> used to close the Glastonbury tent. Oh, really? So the first time I performed at Glastonbury in the comedy tent, I'd been doing stand-up for just a few months and they said to me, um, would you like to play the, the, have you got 20 minutes set? And I lied and I said, yes, I didn't. I had a five minute set and it was so horrific. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. Trying to do, trying to paper over 20 with five. I mean, it was such a long time ago. Louise Woodward was part of my routine. (laughs) I mean, if you know who I'm talking about, then you're so old. And it was just horrific. And it was so bad that I didn't do comedy. And I somehow wet myself as well on the way home. That was uh, a memory I have. And then um, when I went back to Glastonbury a few years later, I got the most raucous, amazing, barnstorming response. And that's what I love about comedy. Like you go back to places where you've died on your hole and thought, well, what what on earth am I even doing with my life, let alone my career? And then you go back when you're better and yeah. you're like, come at me. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's what makes a comic different to just a normal funny person. It's like you you want to do battle. You want to fight fire. They don't call it, I've, I've heard this a lot recently, they don't call it killing for nothing, yeah. do they? I, I killed those guys. It's quite, it sounds like a bit of an Americanism, but it, it still, it works over here as well, doesn't yeah. it? How did, he, how did it go last night? I killed them. We've got all that to come. Uh, we need a name for the festival. Do you want oh. to think about it? Oh my God, I can't just call it Shapfest, can I? Yeah, you can if you Shapfest. want. Shapfest, thank you. There you go. You see, sometimes it just comes straight out and that's fine. Shapfest, let's not drill any deeper than that we, that's fine we've got a name for it and we need to put it somewhere where in the world is it going to be I'm going to be um, I'm going to keep it in Britain yeah well you know what even Dan Reynolds of Imagine Dragons and you know he's from Nevada and that and he said the, you know the best festivals in the world are the UK so you got that do right do you reckon he says that in interviews in Sweden as well <laughs> the best festivals in the world are in Sweden <laughs> thank you very much that's great don't know why that Dutch guy spoke. They then. were the first band I took my son to. Oh, were they that really? Was beautiful, yeah. Because he was little and he loved the Imagine Dragons. Lovely and me and his boys. dad took him, which was all very special because me and his dad aren't together. Yeah. But we took him to the Imagine oh, Dragons. Nice. And they had this massive rainbow flag because he's a Mormon, isn't he? That's right. Um, but a massive LGBTQ plus uh, advocate. Yeah. I love that about him. And so they had the massive flag. And he said, if there's one thing I want to achieve, is to change hearts and minds in my own community about LGBTQ+. And I'm just watching it with my 10-year-old son. I'm crying. He's like going, what are you doing, mom? <laughs> Put yourself together. So they they are good people. Yeah. But I think I like the weather here yeah. for festivals. I don't like to be burning hot at festivals. No. I'm going to put this festival mm. in my spiritual home. Yep. And I know I'm going to be treading on toes here. Because there always already is a wonderful festival there, yeah. but on the Isle of Wight. Hey! And obviously there's a great lineage there, and so it's a great place to put it. Check one. Testing. Is everybody ready yet? We good? Let the day begin. So we're going to start with the Dawn Chorus, okay? So if you can imagine... It's early. I know it's a big ask because most of the time you're not watching bands at this time, but this is a fantasy day. This fantasy day, the first person that I want my ears to hear sing is Leonard Cohen. Okay. okay. I want to sit and I want to listen to Leonard. 
and I want to hear his chat. I want to hear his poetry. I want to hear his songs. And I'd quite like to hear closing time when the sun is shining. Because <laughs> the, perverse, the perversity of that is brilliant. And I'm such a night owl. I used to be such a night owl. I don't remember deliberately going to bed up until I was pregnant. So the whole of the 90s, I don't think I owned pyjamas. I was one of those people that would stay to the bitter end. Or it might be an ADHD thing, I've been told this since. Because you're always waiting for that one thing, that one event that will be amazing. You don't want to miss don't out wanna, on anything. Yeah, and you're drinking and the people you're meeting and, and, and I love drinking with strangers and I don't do this anymore, yeah. which is why I want to see it in the day because it's the day that I've come to love now because I would like to live for longer, but, and, crucially. And this brings us beautifully around actually to the tour that you're about to do. It was the 90s, yeah. which does touch on some of these themes, doesn't it? About Obviously about those times, about coming up, about your halcyon, your youth, essentially, coming up. Yeah. The correct pronunciation of my show is, it was the 90s! As in, it's an excuse for anything. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff we know now that we didn't know then. Like, we didn't know you're not meant to come home with sick in your hair, for example. We didn't know that. We thought we were all fun. And we were ladettes because ladettes was like about women taking the power back. But actually, a lot of the time it was to our detriment because we were so keen to appear invulnerable that we never talked to even our closest friends about how a one-night stand actually made us feel diminished. Because you were having to, you had to live that veneer a little bit. Yeah, and and now we don't realise that the bloke shouldn't have been laddie. Yeah. Let alone the girls, because it's, um, being a lad means denying that anything's truly hurting you emotionally. And that's where we were. So we're drinking and we're dancing and the band is really happening and any, all of that. It wasn't like we went out and had a drink in the hope that we'd meet someone we fancied. We went out in the 90s and drank until we fancied someone. Mm. You're drinking yourself, you're persuading yourself via alcohol to yeah. like somebody. Yeah. And we've all done it multiple times, Oh, yes, we? we have. And, to um, feel something, though, also, and to, yes. to obliterate something else. Well, again, sorry, I keep bringing up ADHD because I'm getting lots of um, help for it at the moment. And one of the things I've learned is a lot of that drinking was to manage ADHD. Um, so what's your particular version of it? Because I know a little bit about it and I've got some traits myself, actually. Mm. But what's your, I know there are different iterations of it. How does it manifest for you, problematically and non-problematically, if you don't mind uh, Well, so I reckon it was about um, when I was 10 or 11 and I really wanted to do well at school. And I presented as a really intelligent, articulate kid. Yeah. But when it came to doing homework, this steel, like concentrating, this shutter came down and it was impossible. So then I would read for hours and hours and hours, but I couldn't read the books that I was meant to read for yeah. school or university. I wanted to, but I couldn't. Something, shutters came down. And then what happens as a child, you get labelled not reaching her potential, lazy. If only she would just, that word, just, yeah. just concentrate, just work harder. Just apply yourself. Just apply yourself. Yeah. And it damages your self-esteem mm. because you know you are, you're trying. Yeah. 
And so you're told, you don't know you've got a neurological condition. You're told that you're just, yeah. you've got it all there, but you're just a, your own worst enemy. Yeah. So that erodes your self-confidence, which makes it really bad socially. And you end up sleeping with people who say haberdashery in an adorable way. And then how it manifested in my work is um, in a good way, because I have a scatterbrain and I can think on my feet. So the scatterbrain thing is is good, but socially, can we swear? Fuck yeah. Socially, it's been fucked because I don't always read social signals. Yeah. I overtalk. I get overexcited. Mm when I meet people and so you come across as domineering where really you're just really, really excited. So now I have therapy and there are this, I mean, this is not a five minute conversation. This is huge, but it's making me understand my life, my actions, my choices. And I'm in therapy and I have medication, which has changed my life beyond measure. Are there any downsides to it or is it is it really like, would you say like 90% positive? Is it like are there the bits that you preferred didn't happen or is that, it all It's good? 100% positive. That's incredible. Um, I will say though, it's not just the drugs, it's the therapy yeah. too. What people in the creative industry worry about getting a diagnosis like mine is that, oh, it's going to affect my work. It's affected my work in a positive way. I am probably five times better as a comic writing this show than I ever have been. Wow. And on on stage, I'm different. I'll give you a quick example of how it's changed me. So I have done the um, game show on Radio 4, Just a Minute. More I've heard times. you on it. And it's, in, it's, a, what, what, it's one of the greatest things in our culture, isn't it? Yeah. It's, I have lost, I've been on that more times than I can count. And it is, it has always been a joke on it, the fact that I can't get through 10 seconds because my, my brain scatters and I, trip up immediately but they always have me on because I I fail really well <laughs> I was on it recently now that I'm um, on medication with ADHD and I immediately got through a whole minute without hesitation repetition or deviation because I can see my journey I can see the words I can travel back and forth in my mind and I'm in control and that's the same on stage I'm so much funnier on stage now that my ADHD is um being managed this is becoming a thing because i've definitely got some ADD traits and i like we've got we'll move on to the next bit of the the festival in a minute because um we, we have to but one of the things that i noticed was just little things like you know when you're moving into a new house and your partner's saying or whoever at this stage and say well, what we can do is we can knock through there mm. and that kitchen that can go and what you could do is you can turn that into a double bedroom you've got a mezzanine over here I'm like what the fuck are you, what talking, are you talking about, about? I, you have completely lost me in the first yeah. part of the first sentence yeah. and also in a more slightly abstract way I can't envision the future I can't, I can't plan the future very easily mm. so it's like I can't when people say, you got to go for that, you got to put it in your mind, you got to achieve it. I'm like, I can't do that. That's not something that's not available to my mind. So it's very interesting to hear you talk like that and really gives me great optimism. Well, I'll tell you what quickly, because I know we've got to move on, but I don't think ADHD is an affliction. I think no. that we, our world has been constructed to put everyone in boxes. We need the risk takers. Yeah. We need the ones that go headlong into a situation without really thinking <laughs> about it. And we need to accommodate them. Um, because they, they're the ones that sort of break down doors yeah. and, and create brand new paths because we can't follow the old paths. Well, a great opportunity. 
God, I feel a bit mosh, to be honest. And and we've only got as far as the dawn <laughs> chorus. We've we understand now why Leonard Cohen uh, is going to perform yes. closing time in the morning, so that we can enjoy that thing that we used to miss. And there you go. We've we moved to the the second part of the festival. First of all, what was the first live music that you experienced when you were a kid? Wet, wet, wet concert. Oh man! <laughs> wishing I was looking, wishing I was looking. Yeah. My favourite bit. I always, I used to do this on the radio show. Uh, Marty Pello when he does this on Angel Eyes. Set me on fire, baby. I love that. <laughs> I, I I just have an unalloyed love for a bit of wet, wet, wet. It's so amazing. What, does this speak to what kind of music in general you were liking when you were, what would that be, like 13, no. 14? Or? I would. I think I was about 13 then and I only went because my friend had a ticket and invited me. I had no access to that kind of thing because back then we didn't have Spotify and we didn't have any money for records and stuff. So the only music you heard was um, your mum's Shirley Bassey. Um, my mum had Elton John, Shirley Bassey and Barbara Streisand. And so I listened to them obsessively. And then you get older and you swap records and you go around to people's houses to listen to music. And and I went to France when I was 15 and I stayed with a girl who was a mad Depeche Mode fan. So Depeche Mode were my awakening band okay, when yeah. I really understood that music was life mm. at 15 because that's the sort of age isn't it yeah. and then that just led me into sort of indie yeah. but also sort of um you know I'm a mad fan of like erasure yeah. and the pet shop boys electronic stuff yes yes yeah. yes yes I try and see as much live music as I possibly can I have to see Billy Bragg regularly if if I don't see Billy Bragg fairly regularly I go really right wing <laughs> So he's your lodestone politically. He drags you back. Yes. The Bard of Barking is like, no, come on, Shepard, don't be ridiculous. Yes. You've got to get left on this. Yeah. Because, That's amazing. So I was raised in a in a very, with very socialist values in the socialist family. So in a way, I've sort of rebelled because I am, you know, I'm, I'm a little business. Yeah. Let's, let's be honest. And some of the choices I've made in my life have made my parents and my brother go, really? You weren't raised with this, an ISA. Um, <laughs> I haven't got an ISA, by the way. <laughs> but things along those lines without um, delving too much into my um, personal <laughs> shit. But sometimes I get so bogged down with, with my life and what I need to run yeah. things, I go to see Billy and I'm just put right back into 17, 18-year-old me. Was that when you first found him? Yeah, sixteen. When when he he it was the, his the first song that really got me was the few, and they uh, salute the foes their fathers fought by raising their right arms in the air. And I'm going to be a bit of honesty here, right? Please. Growing up, someone with a Cockney accent. I know he's not a Cockney, but like for want of a better phrase, yeah. working class accent, Essex or East London. Oh, that, I know what you mean. Yeah, that was the accent that people would be racist yeah. towards okay. us with, right? Middle-class people are racist in much more stealthier ways, but it will be like all the go-home, yeah. bloody foreigners will be in that accent. And as a little kid, it stung. And I felt such comfort when I heard that song because I was like, here was a working-class bloke and it made me understand in the days before the internet and yeah. Twitter, where you can go on and realise the majority of people aren't assholes, yeah. actually, um, made me go, oh, my God, he's got our back. Yeah. 
he's got our back. So it's not the case of all of these people yeah. hate us. That meant the world to me, that song. I'm going to dip in a little bit here. You've talked about it a lot um, over the years. You came to the UK from Iran, I think when you were five from Tehran. Um, yes. And of course, you, your father was very well known there and, and a, a very well known satirist and writer and journalist and poet. Uh, and he became a bit of an enemy of the state. Uh, stop me when I get bits wrong, mm. which I'm sure I will when I'm paraphrasing. So when you came over here, you were sort of on the run from um, some pretty bad bad actors, as they mm. say. In fact, I remember hearing you talk about the fact that there was a point at which when you were a kid that you were getting death threats to the house yes. for your dad. So that being the case, how does that affect young Shaparat when it comes to making friends, when it comes to fitting in? Mm. Did it make it difficult? What was it like? Well, we had um, terrorists sent to London to kill my dad, actually. And and the plot was foiled because there was an informant that told Scotland Yard. So they scooped us up, took us to a safe house. And uh, the way we dealt with it as a family was laugh a lot. That's how we deal with things. And looking back, actually, not, properly talking to us about our fears would have been good. But, you know, my parents are a different generation. Mm. And my, you know, my, my dad especially... He's different now, obviously. We all we all grow up and we move on. But he was a young man, mm. you know, with two kids. Absolutely terrified something was going to harm them. And our family culture has always been, as long as we are laughing, it's all going to be all right. And I think that's good to an extent. Mm. But it did mean that as children, we parented our parents because we didn't want them to think that we were terrified. and You're so, protecting them yeah. by not letting on how terrified you are. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it left us with um, not an unhefty, so I don't use post-traumatic stress disorder lightly. Well, come on, if you've got terrorists looking yeah. for you, it's PTSD, isn't it? Yeah, it's, and, and it's, um, you know, the stuff that's happened to my life, like say someone's a bit late coming home. Say my, you know, my, my son is five minutes late coming home from school. I... I'm practically in need of sedation because... That, it, that runs so deep into your yeah. core, doesn't it? Well, that's what terrorists do, isn't yeah. it? They terrorise you. Yeah. Okay. And so musically then as well, you know, because I was going to say, well, all your mates are like getting into Duran Duran and shit like that. Mm. But th this is it. You've already said you start to get into electronica, you start to get into indie music. So let's mo move on to the second band that we're going to get on. Uh, all that being said, we're moving into sort of uh, mid to late morning um, who's the next person we're going to see on stage? Okay, so while Leonard Cohen was on, mm. I had my friend take my children to do some kids' activity. Yeah, I would good. now like my kids back. Okay. And I would like to sit with them and watch The Muppet Show live. Oh, man. If that's all right. I want, them, I want the whole shebang. I want highs. I want lows. Yeah. I, there's never an inappropriate time to hear. It's never an inappropriate time. That's just just for the listener here. Natalie, the producer, has just popped out of the studio, the ante room, and just done the heart emoji. Yeah. Um, what could be better than? Is the, is it? Uh, forgive my ignorance. That this is something that should be happening, isn't it? Surely there should be a version of the Muppet Show that can go on the road and that can hit festivals and that can do camp festival and that we can all pay to see. And like you yeah. say, we could have Animal on drums. Uh, you know, we've obviously got Kermit and, uh, and Miss Piggy getting off with each other and we've got the Foz. Uh, that should be happening. But that I, 
I don't think it's yet available, is it? But we can make it happen now. You cannot underestimate the impact of The Muppet Show on our generation. It was my life. And I'm so often asked, like, why I got into stand-up and who my comedy heroes are. And of course, I say the, I say, you know, Richard Pryor, I say Billy Connolly, I say all of those people. But actually, it's the Muppets. They are the the child's first, the doorway through to comedy, aren't they? They are, and 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 through to show. Yeah. I had the cassette of their the Muppet Show album, and I used to crawl under our dining room table. So I was tiny, and I used to put it in this little contraption, press the play, and I would just lie with my ear next to it, like thinking, I can, if I just push hard enough, maybe I'll go in, in. <laughs> and I'll be in the Muppet Theatre. And there's this song in the Muppet Show that um, is still one of my, I think it's originally by a guy called Jim Crochet. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's sung by a Muppet who's really, really old at the beginning and it's dusty and cobwebby piano. And it goes, if I could put time in a bottle, the first thing that I'd like to do. Stop it. You're taking me over the bloody edge here. And then, and then time does go back and he is youthful. My God, that song broke me as a child. I got it. There's something about that stuff. About being um, inclusive. Yeah. And about being kind like Gonzo. What the fuck was Gonzo? <laughs> no one knows what Gonzo even is, what species he is. And he's the dickhead, probably with ADHD, that shoots himself out of a cannon to get attention because he can't do anything else. That's us, we're Gonzo. Yeah, we're all Gonzo. Comics are Gonzo. And yet, he has this gaggle of chickens who love him. <laughs> Camilla loves him, so yeah. he's got that literal nest of feathers oh. to give him just enough self-esteem to carry on through life. Jesus. I related more to Gonzo. People always think, oh, Miss Piggy, no. Yeah. I relate to Gonzo. I always found it quite interesting that Miss Piggy, such a huge female icon, was voiced by a bloke, <laughs> Frank Oz. <laughs> it's beautiful and ridiculous. <laughs> Let me just ask you, also just on that, where you were talking about, I read something else where you were talking about the about the creative mind versus that sort of slightly right-wing corporate mentality. And I just thought it was a lovely thing that you said about how creativity is... Of any of any stripe, whether you're an author or whether you're a struggling musician or you're a performer of any kind, it basically bubbles up from compassion, and that's why so many right wing commentators and so many you know money people want to shut it down and belittle it and say, oh, here they are, the snowflakes. And I, I just think that we have to fight that fight, don't we? We do. You know what I find really interesting is when they um, people moan about oh, right wing comics. It's only the left wing comics. Well. Comedy by its nature is going to be left wing because it's reaching out, it's communicating. It doesn't actually care where you're from, who you are. It wants you on board and there just simply isn't. And when people, people don't look to comedy for anything other than comfort and that comfort is much more apparent in an empathetic, what is attributed to a left wing mentality because it's us. Yeah. It's not. It's a societal. It's yeah. a society. It's people together. It's yeah. a fellowship. It's punching up always. Yeah. So it's the whole argument down. about all oh, right and comics, like, well, where are they? You've already won, mate. Where well, are? Yeah. You rule, you rule the fucking world. What else do you want? <laughs> so all they're doing is rather than writing jokes 
are making us laugh. They're just moaning about the fact that, you know, Nish Kumar's hosting something. <laughs> Jesus, it's there. Find your audience. Yeah. There. Where are they? are not there, are they? The audience if you're funny, won't. we'll laugh. Yeah. It's as simple as that. There's only one Shabarak core Sandy, <laughs> this thing, we, which is what we were taught by the Muppets in the 70s. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. We hit a bit of a lull here. It's mid maybe mm. late afternoon. First of all, we've got to check back in with food. Lunchtime, you started off with your egg butter. You're going to be fucking starving now. Yeah. What are we going to eat? I am going to have a pot of my mum's dill rice. Mm. Never had that. It's oh. rice um, made with dill and potatoes. Right. Oh. And other herbs with a massive dollop. And no one's going to kiss me. So I'm going to have a massive dollop of wild garlic yogurt with it. Because that is the ultimate comfort food and it's picnic food. And it's, low, you know, relatively low GI. It'll keep you going for a while longer. Yeah. I just want to pick you up on that very quickly before we move on to the next band. Is a festival, music, book, whatever, is it ever ripe for romantic exploitation, do you think? Have you ever... I don't want to delve too deep on that. Have you ever got off with anybody at a festival? But do you think that in general it's the kind of vibe where it's a good place to try and make new romantic connections? Well, I have tried to meet people at Glastonbury and it's never worked. I've um, I've never snogged a stranger at Glastonbury. I have been to Glastonbury several times with the same boyfriend and that was a lot of fun and that was the best times we had together were at Glastonbury, I think. But I think generally meeting someone brand new from scratch when you're not at your freshest. Not. <laughs> that's good euphemism. Nobody's at the, yeah, nobody's at the freshest. No one's at their freshest. Nobody's box fresh. No, I'm just I'm having a bit of a shame attack, actually. No, I don't want to take you down, though. No, I'm going to, pull, I'm going to go. pull you right out of it. Thank and, you. And talk about Glastonbury, the, just while you're talking about it, the one... Didn't you do a Glastonbury, maybe it was 2014, and, and all the electrics failed, and then you ended up singing Tina Turner? That was my proudest moment. What was that? You re, that's a turnaround, isn't it? I was so happy with myself that day. I just thought, <laughs> there's not many people that could have kept that tent going for half an hour. Did you do half an hour with I did no half, electrics? I did, I did my time. I had no electrics. And I remember Lillian and pulled her her set because of no electrics. And I was like, that's the difference between musicians and comics. We don't need shit. We just need a voice. So I kept it going and I had no um, no sound. So I just gathered everyone and just did like mad Tina Turner impressions. I think they enjoyed it. Can you do a bit? Um, That's too much, oh God, isn't it? I, I, hate, I hate making people do I that. I can't think of a single thing. You're simply the... No, I can't. I actually, on a ferry to Belgium, I was very young and I ded- I got the DJ on the ferry to dedicate that song to my brother and I didn't realise it was a love song. What a dick. <laughs> and my everybody's going, like... Uh, 
Chit chat. What are you doing? Sat Lucas, like, I love you, like the best brother in the world. And he'd be like, oh my God, get away from me. In your eyes, I get lost. I get what, right, lost, washed, washed away. away. I mean, Jesus <laughs> Christ, this is a bit much. Happy God. Oh, that's brilliant. So, next band, come on. Or oh, next act. Uh, we've had the Muppet Show. What's next? We've had the Muppet Show. So, we've got to have lunch. So, we need some focus. And really, really. Self-indulgently, I want to go to the comedy tent yeah. now. Good, because it's the first time so far that we've had a yeah. comedian on. Um, I'm going to go to the comedy tent and I would like to watch Billy Connolly, please. Oh, Christ. I met him once and I shook his hand and that was it. And he was sweet. Have you, have you ever met the great man? So I've never seen him live on stage, which makes me very sad. I went to a big awards ceremony some years ago and I was handing out one of the awards. He was in the audience. The only reason he knew that I was a comic was because I was introduced as comedian Shappy called Sandy. So he knew I was a comic. Yeah. And then when I came off stage and, you know, everyone was milling about having a, a, a party, he was across the room from me and I was staring at him. <laughs> and do you know what he did? He knew I was a comic. He would have known that he'll be a hero to me. And he crossed the room. He bought me a chocolate-covered strawberry. He crossed the room and he goes, I bought this for you. And I said, thank you. And we had like a just a few seconds of a silly conversation about chocolate strawberries. And then he kissed my hand and he went, I've got to go now. And he went. What he did was so generous and so human. He, he knew that I would remember that for the rest of my life. So he gave me a moment to remember. I've got a memory of being like, you know, 10 or something. And my dad, who's my comedy hero, <laughs> but I thought he was so boring at the time. He only listened to, at this time, this is what my perception of it was. He listened to Willie Nelson tapes and Billy Connolly tapes. Mm. And um, and there was one in particular, and it was this, it was 70s Billy. So he was doing all this, he was a really kind of fucking, um, all that, you know, like he's mm. doing all the shipyard stuff, you know. That's very good. The job ain't weaker. And there's a whole <laughs> bit where he's talking about throwing shit out of a window or something. Um, but that was my first intro to him, and then that was it. I mean, I, I don't know if you saw the, the documentaries that he did a couple of years ago that were all about his life. Yeah. When was your first introduction to it? Was it on record and stuff, or did you see him on yeah, telly? Yeah, so I, I think my parents got me... Um, well, no, he was on um, Not the Nine O'Clock News. He was the Ayatollah. So, oh. so imagine we're like from Iran. Yeah. We've escaped the Ayatollah. My dad's a satirist. We're watching not the nine o'clock news after years of watching Benny Hill, <laughs> right? So we're like, whoa, this is it. This is comedy. And they had Ayatollah Khomeini. They had all these like sexy girls dancing. Though you may be stubborn as a mule, I want you to be my man. In Iran, bab shubi And we were kids watching this and it was Billy Connolly as the Ayatollah. Oh my God. And that was it. I yeah. was like, this is comedy. This is my tribe. These are my people. And my parents got me um, the Billy Connolly live video where he was wearing that zebra shirt. Yeah. I know that video off by heart. Wincy Willis is in the audience that asking one, a that question. That's an audience with. An audience oh, with, Oh, God, yeah. it's fucking brilliant. That's so brilliant. And I, um, my gran was living with us for a long time and she didn't speak English. She was from Iran and she would watch that again and again <laughs> and cry. She goes, I can't understand what he's saying, but he's so funny. Put, the, put that zebra shirt man on, put him on, put the... 
put Billy on and my gran who didn't speak English what would watch that? that video that's, that's charisma it's love he it, gives people love he does he just looks at the audience like he's like he literally does and he's such a fucking cliche but like you're his best mate yeah and he like that I just remembering one of my favourite bits is when he's talking about when he's <laughs> something about he's got a colostomy pants on or something he goes to the pub and he's he's just full of piss and he's walking around it's all just it's just golden moments isn't it it's just yeah it's just ridiculous and I I loved um, him as a comic because so when I started comedy I started at Jonglers Comedy Clubs where you had to be like really set up punch set up punch set up punch that's how I was trained to be yeah yeah and it took me quite a long time to sort of undo that to relax to relax and actually um, he's much more my style of of what I enjoy comedy to be. Take me into your yeah. world. Because um, when someone's like set up punch, it's brilliant and it's clever, um, but you don't always get to know that person You're not, you're not let in. You're not yeah. let in. Yeah. yeah, whereas Billy Connolly just took me into the world as he oh. sees it. Um, and that is a gift. And I don't, I don't know how long it's going to be till we have anyone no. like him again. It's, it's a... You're making me just want to go back and just watch anything to do with Billy, really. I'm, I've got the Billy and Albert uh, 33, the Billy and Albert record, actually. I might pop that one and go on. See, we're watching Billy now. We've we've had that delicious Dill Rice. Who's the crew? Who are the best festival people that you know? And you can you can throw in a few, as it's a fantasy, you can throw in a few, like they do with the, you know, fancy dinner guest. You can have a couple of famous people as well if you want. Can I can I hang out with, with Jarvis Cocker? Cocker's there. Okay. He's there anyway because you know what he's like. He's just, uh, he's a bon vivant, isn't he? Okay, so I want Jarvis Cocker there, please. And I want, I would like Jarvis Cocker to look after my kids <laughs> when I want to go off and like do stuff by myself. He'd love or, it. Yeah, so I want Jarvis Cocker as my babysitter, please. I could take Billy Connolly with me as yeah. my festival pal, but I wouldn't want to watch anything. I just want to sit and yeah. talk to him. Um, will you come with me? Yeah. Okay, I'm, you I'm already to be honest, I'm already with you because I'm your genie, so I'm sort of there, so you don't even right, have to worry about that. That's it. Well, that's it. You're my festival, and also my friend Chloe. Chloe, Chloe, I Chloe. Always go to all my festivals with my mate Chloe, who is the most fun. She never goes to bed. She's always in a good mood. Always good with hanging out with strangers. That's the thing. How are you doing out there? Are you ready for the next act of the day? So this is great, really. We we've done bit. We've got Billy Connolly, and he's following us around a little bit. To be honest, he's sort of striding around like that, you know, and just sort of, oh my god! But we can't get very far with him because he's Billy, so we leave him behind. And it's the sunset moment now. So the sun is just sinking behind the trees there on the hill, and this is the moment where everything starts to get a bit emotional. Is it true that after your divorce you couldn't really listen to music for two years no I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't listen to music I listened to I think my radio was locked on radio four <laughs> for two years I I was in a depression yeah. and and I and I've since um realized that that's not uncommon because you just can't connect I was in such a funk and then um 
when I was ready to come out of it, I think I I don't think I know. I heard elbows. Um, Daylight today. So though I can't, I still can't I, can't. I still can't say it without crying. Oh my god, it was so sad because ah, geez, edit this out. Ah, because it just fell. Oh, thank you, darling. Oh, it was so. It was honestly, I can't tell you how tough that time was and how. Um, you know, I did. I did live at the Apollo when I was having a breakdown. It was awful, and then um. I heard that song and I was like, what is that? What is that? What is that? And I, I, I don't think I listened to anything else for like a week and a half and then more. And I'd go running and just put that on a loop. I'm sorry Those curtains was wide. No, but I just think that that song just, just brought the world and life and love back into my life. Um, and I was ready to, obviously, a period of intense grief just had to shift or I would just, I was just going to die. And I'm not exaggerating that. I'm not saying that lightly. I was so broken. And then, um, yeah, and then I just threw myself back into music that I wasn't familiar with, like a 16-year-old. I couldn't get enough of it. I couldn't get enough of bands that I didn't know. I, I, I hung out with people that saw bands all the time that could tell me about everything, and I just got to know, like, you know, I am Clute. I would not yeah. have come across that band had I not been actively looking for stuff that I didn't already know. Have and you heard Pete, jo- Pete Jobson, who's in the band mm-hmm. and does some stuff with Guy Garvey, has got um, a new EP out. I'm doing a bit of a weird sort of side plug for Pete Jobson. It's called The Piano Tuner, and it's some of the most beautiful music I've heard in a long time. So you will love that, I'm sure. So it was a reawakening, basically, that particular... And there must be something about that song, because it's obviously, I, I think, arguably, I think Guy would agree, it's their most successful song, mm. and it's played at weddings, and it's played at funerals, and it's become almost one of those You'll Never Walk Alone songs, isn't it? There's something about a song like that, or You'll Never Walk Alone, actually. There are some key... I, I will survive. It's almost in that category, isn't it? Yeah. There's something about it that it, that metaphor of throwing the curtains wide is there's something da, in that, da, isn't da, there? Da, 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 da. Drinking in the morning sun. And that line, I never knew whether it was drinking in the morning yeah. sun or, or drinking. drinking in the morning sun. That's a really good point. I've not asked, I've not found that one out. I remember walking home. There was a gorgeousness to walking home at dawn from a party with your mates and opening up another can of beer as the sun was already out. Obviously, I've stopped doing all that now because, like I said, I want to live for a long time, live for a longer time. But there was a gorgeousness to that sort of um, hedonism and lack of self-care. And that song has self-care in it. Yeah. And hedonism, that line, drinking in the morning sun and drinking in the morning sun for me. And well, there's something about those guys because they did a song when when I was getting, when I was, my marriage was breaking up, uh, not really talk about this, but they had a song called Open Arms. Mm. And that was the one that busted me apart. And it was around that time as well. Yeah. And so it was like, um, you know, we've got open arms for broken hearts, yeah. like yours, my son. Yeah. So they just mainline into the emotions, those boys, don't they? Absolutely. They they really do. And my son is um 14 and he is, uh, I love this, completely independently of me, has got massively into Blur 
and pulp. He plays, he's learned to play intermission on the piano and all of that and and Pet Shop Boys. And I really, really enjoy that. But we were um, talking about poetry because he's doing lots of poetry at school. And he wouldn't get, it's too soon, elbow's too soon for him. And he goes, but what is the point of poetry? And I say, you wait, babe. You wait till your heart's broken. (laughs) And then (laughs) all the more poetic words you will need, your heart will need to to express itself in a way that you can't. And that's it. And that music expresses things that words can't. Well, I mean... Build a rocket, boys. I I mean, how... Bloody hell, fire. Honestly, we're a mess. Mm. So who are the Sunset Band? By the way, I haven't cried so much in a podcast before. <laughs> this is what I aim to do. Um, so my sunset band. So look, I've got Jarvis with me, right? Yeah, yeah, he's there. So he can. He's, well, he's been looking after the kids. You he, know. Yeah, so he can sing common people to me just a cappella. Oh yeah, quietly over lunch, right? Yeah. Brilliant. So we've got. He's common, covered. So common people is such an important song to me that I would have to hear it at some point mm. in the festival. So I'm just going to accept him singing it quietly with That's mouthfuls good. of falafel. <laughs> <laughs> you just will a, just never a bit in your understand fringe. how it feels to live. Yeah, I would like Prince, please. Bloody hell, yeah! All right, all right. Did I you w- get to see him? I did. Where did you see him? I saw him once at Earl's Court mm. when I was about twenty. Bloody hell! And I was—I think I was in the very back row. I didn't understand what was going on. It wasn't a fun experience because I was so far back and I didn't really understand. Then I saw him very shortly before he died at Coco. I think I was there. In Camden. I was there. And well, I think he might have done a couple of dates there, but I, I saw him at Coco that in 2015, yeah. 14. Stood right at the front, but it wasn't hard yeah. to get right at the front because it was a very small audience. And I lo- always loved his songs, but I'd never seen him live. I didn't know how funny he was. Yeah. I didn't okay. know how cute he was. I didn't know how what a brilliant uh, self-deprecating yeah. actually sense of humour he had, and that bit where he went because you know he's very strict about phones. And the night I went, he went, "Get your phones out, get your phones out," and we all got our phones out, and he properly let's take oh properly took God. photos. And I was standing with my um, boyfriend at the time, who was a fanatical Prince fan, and he put his hand out. And Prince um, just high-fived him. And isn't it funny? It was... The, That's like the hand of God, isn't it? It was the one of the best nights of my top five nights of my life, oh. seeing him live. Quite phenomenal. And I remember he came out and he goes, I got 14 hits. I'm going to play 14 hits. <laughs> and he played um, Little Red Corvette, which I'd never heard him do live, but... Afterwards, like we both, we, me and my ex-boyfriend were just weeping throughout most of it. And when we were going home, I said to him, I have never seen a performer that's so alive. And those are the words I use. I've never seen someone so alive. And a few, I think it was just like six, seven months later, he died. And I can't yet properly listen to him. Okay. I'm not quite over it because um that was that 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 was a tough one to take there's a life force that goes ro- rocketing through some people and mm. he was one of them it's like he he gave every every ounce of himself to creating this stuff mm. that's a hell of a booking so I can't believe I haven't got Simon and Garfunkel in there you can't have everything well you know what I, I, because I'm the genie what we can do is we're going to have a little break before the headliner 
right? Because okay. uh, we're running out of time. We've got to get these guys on, but we've got a little anteroom tent. And what what's funny is, I don't know if you can see this, but Prince is having a right old laugh like a drain with Connolly over there. Amazing. So they're just riffing, which is beautiful. On beanbags in the corner, it's Simon and Garfunkel. And they're doing the whole of the Bridge Over Trouble Water album. But I don't know if 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 that's all right with you that's, or not. That's brilliant. And it's and it's so informal. Yeah. That, that they look over to me and but they say, Hey Sherpy, is there anything you want to hear? <gasps> and I'll say, Oh my god, oh my god, I can't remember the name of that song, but it, it's it's the one that goes, um, slow down, you move too fast. Oh. You got to make the moment mm-hmm. less just fifty ninth Bridge Street song That's or something. The one, yes. And they sing that just for me. For God's sake. Would they do the only living boy in New York for me after that? Absolutely. Right. I think it's interesting. I love that song, that slow down, you move too fast. The one time that a boy has written me a song. Oh, wow. It was, it was slow down, butterfly. You're going to wear your wings down, butterfly. <laughs> Come back down to earth now, butterfly. <laughs> um, and That's lovely though, isn't it? Yeah. Was it lovely though? Did it, was, it feel lovely? I, th- I think it was in my post-divorce craziness and, you know, ADHD. It's like, if you have a friend with ADHD, you want them to slow down. But we didn't know it was ADHD. Everyone just thought it was my personality. I am so zen now. You are, actually. Mm. And I think that your sort of uh, centeredness, I think that's something that comes with a bit of time on the clock as well, yes. isn't it? You sort of know yourself a little bit more and you think, okay, breathe. It's not that fucking important. As no. long as everybody, is everybody alive? Is everybody all right? Okay, I'm fucking out. It doesn't matter. So that's where we're at. What? For me so far, this has been the best bit in this little tent. Connolly and Prince just having a laugh. Simon and Garfunkel playing our favourite songs, but we do then have to emerge. It's dark. It's a beautiful night near Ventnor. You can almost hear birds just going to bed for the night. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a beautiful still evening and the lights are on for the headline event. Who are we going to see? Who's going to cap off this beautiful and perfect experience? do 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 <laughs> oh man! <laughs> Boom! Drop the mic. It's not vanilla ice. <laughs> vanilla ice. <laughs> it's vanilla ice. <laughs> it is the one and only Freddie Mercury. Freddie Bulsara. See, when I saw Pulp in 1995 at Glastonbury, I was absolutely bowled over, and I remember just screeching, "He's the best frontman since Freddie! He's the best." Frontman since Freddie, and I will never forget that was. I think that was my favorite gig ever. Was was Pulp then? What a great privilege to see that! I wish I'd been there for that. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how good they were. I just couldn't believe this was existing in the same world as me. Anyway, so Freddie Mercury is another one that I didn't get to see live. I think as a stand-up, I really, really need performance and cabaret alongside my music if I'm going to have it at my dream lineup. And I think that a lot of stand-ups look to good frontmen like Freddie Mercury for how to perform, how to reach people, every single person in that room and make you feel that, make them feel that they're the only ones in there. I saw Bruce Springsteen for the first time a few years ago. I couldn't believe in that massive crowd 
He was reaching every single one of us. That is a gift you can't learn, but you can, you know, copy a little bit. You know, I'm not saying that me being a <laughs> sort of co- comic going on a, a, a tour of medium-sized art centres is <laughs> quite the same as Springsteen. It is, it is coming from the same well, though. It is. It's that well, yeah. And you're so, right. It's great to be able to reach in and take something of those people. That's what influence is all about, isn't it? You say, okay, I can... I yeah. can borrow some of that shit, you know. Yeah. And and when those people, when I see them perform, they care so yeah. deeply about how their crowd is feeling. They care so deeply. And I've seen many other brilliant ones that really can't, no, it's, it's almost like a thing yeah. that I can't be asked. And I can't be asked with that yeah. either. I'm like, brilliant, I'll just listen to, to you at home. I'm yeah. not going to bother coming out to see you again because I want to show Obviously, we're going to talk about the Live Aid experience. You're, you're a bit younger than I am, but that was the big thing for me. But to watch, to watch it again and again with my children, mm. uh, because they instinctively know, to watch those waves, those 90,000 people, mm. it's literally like he's controlling the mm. whole fucking crowd like that. And that's oh, just so special, isn't it? Oh, just remembering it. So special. What a great thing for you to do at the end of your festival. Oh, it's just so, so precious. And I think by this time, Jarvis has to come back, obviously, and bring yeah. my kids. Got because... to bed. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, kids yeah. are coming because okay. the kids love, the kids love Queen. All kids love Queen. Um, all kids love Queen. Which and, says something in itself. Yeah, and they get it. And I'm not one of those. I know some people sort of, oh, whatever, people can be snobby, but I'd love to watch uh, Freddie with Jarvis. That'd be amazing. But you see, <laughs> common people, for me, when I went to university, I was so freaked out by the private school kids. Yeah. I had never come across these people before. These people whose parents would instill, like my mum and dad want me to have a work ethic. So they've said that if I get a job in a bar, they're going to match my wages pound for pound. I was scrubbing toilets in a hospital to pay for my beer. And these kids were fretting because mm. I only had 200 pound to last them till Monday on a Friday night. And I, I, and I, I came from the 80s where to be like, even at my school, like I was a free school meals kid. And I wouldn't stand in the queue. I'd just make myself sort of like, you know, margarine sandwiches and I put food colouring in my water to pretend that it was juice because I wouldn't, I was ashamed mm. of the fact that I was a free school meal kid. And, and so many of us kids at my big comprehensive were like pretending they weren't poor and the poor kids would be really horrible to you if you had like scruffy uh, shoes. I had, oh God, I'm really like, get the violins out. I had like a hole in my shoes and I, you know, it just yeah, cost a lot so of money. embarrassing when you're a kid, isn't yeah. it? It's a big thing. So, and also we got free um, school bags from Midland Bank, HSBC as it was then. And I said to my dad, I can't take this to school my first day at secondary school because everyone will know it's free and they'll call me a mm. tramp. That's what they did. And my dad got Tipex and he Tipexed out in the Midland Bank logo and he wrote Barclays. There you go. Go to school. And we had to cover our school books and everyone had like wallpaper yeah. or fancy wrapping paper and my dad covered ours up with newspaper because he, he was like, this is print, this is journalism, this is news, this is real and it's free. And I was so ashamed of being poor. I'm not ashamed of being poor. That sounds like such a disservice to my parents because we were rich in other ways. Mm. But, I know what you, mean, you know, though. he's an exiled poet. So we, um, I went to university and I was like, gee, who are these people? And Jarvis came with common people. I was like, yeah. yes! <laughs> such an anthem for yes! that, isn't it? Finally, like, 
someone gets what I've been feeling but couldn't express. Who the fuck are these people? (laughs) My parents are matching me pound for pound. (laughs) Oh, it's so true, isn't it? It is, it's an anthem. He nailed it, he said it out loud and he stopped us feeling embarrassed about it. And I wonder if he ever knows that, like, you know, sort of, he's so Sheffield and so Northern that if he knows that how much that resonated with an Iranian (laughs) refugee kid. But I think that's important. I think that's the thing. It's, and then, but then, at the end of this beautiful experience, we've got Queen blasting out, who are the most bombastic, Absolutely. ridiculous, but fantastically beautiful band. What a great, great thing you've built, a thing of great beauty. Leonard Cohen, Muppet Show Live, into Billy Connolly, into Prince, a little bit of Simon and Garfunkel in the anti-tent, and then Queen to finish. Uh, the perfect uh, Shap Fest, beautifully wrought, by Chaparat Korsandi, who has been just one of the best guests I've ever talked to uh, in any guise. Good luck with the tour. Thank you very much. It was the 90s. It was the ni- Can I mention it's going to be this? Uh, we just added some dates at the yeah. Soho Theatre. Oh, yeah. In London. Shappy.co.uk is where all my live dates are. And the books and everything, it's so beautiful. You've got, you need to, you need more Shappy in your life, and that's where you're going to get it. But as for the lineup, that was one of the best. Thank you so much for joining us today. Shepherd Cross Sunday. Thanks for having me. Thank you.